Beloved, the story is told of a powerful communist leader in the country of Ukraine in the early 20th century was giving a lecture to a large group of people in an auditorium. And the man approached the subject, which was the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He approached the subject from his perspective as an atheistic communist. And basically, he spent an hour going through all the reasons why the people in the audience ought not to think of the resurrection, the literal physical resurrection of the man Jesus Christ as a reality. And what his point was, if they do think of it as reality, that is, in fact, actually nonsense. And if you were to want to entertain that in his mind, it should be relegated to the categories of myth or folklore. After the powerful leader had finished his 60 minutes, an old man near the front of the audience stood up and asked the man, may I give a response to your lecture? And the powerful leader said, yes, certainly you may. You have five minutes. And the old man said, I need only five seconds. He went forward and turned around, faced the gathering, and said in the classic Russian of Eastern believers, Christos Anaste. And then much to the great chagrin and dismay of the powerful lecturer, the deafening, resounding response was Alithos Honeste. Christ is risen. He has risen indeed. And what the man had taken 60 minutes to try to discount was discounted in a matter of seconds. One epilogue, beloved, is that an atheist is a man who knows who chooses not to know. Beloved, we are here this morning remembering, celebrating the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As I think Scott said, every Lord's Day is a commemoration of that great victory. As I think Gary said, every day for a believer is a celebration of Christ's victory over the grave. And in some ways, we are experiencing the same seismic shift that the world calendars have experienced for 2,000 years because we as resurrection people meet on the first day of the week because that is when Lord Jesus rose from the grave. Beloved, please open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians was one of the earliest letters written in the New Testament. It's a Pauline epistle, a Pauline letter, and along with Romans, 1 and 2 Corinthians, and Galatians, these are what some theologians call the gospel group because the heart of the gospel is so embedded in these. These are four of Paul's longest writings. They comprise some 60% of what he wrote. And the situation was the church, the church in Corinth, was an immature church in trouble. And in part, they were in trouble because they lived in this city of Corinth. Corinth was a huge thriving cosmopolitan metropolis and it was ensconced it was embedded saturated with the wickedness and the paganness of the day so much so that even to the greco-roman world the city of corinth was known for their moral wickedness and evil debauchery so much so that the philosopher aristophanes coined a word in classical greek to describe drunken debauchery and moral wickedness, basically the word means to behave like a Corinthian. 
And the situation was the church was in this environment and the church was being polluted by much of the thinking. They had turned communion into a gluttonous feast. The church itself was even entertaining immorality in their midst in the form of incest, so much to the point that even the surrounding pagans in their community was horrified by what the church was tolerating. In chapter 6, Paul lists of some of the characteristic sins of the church in Corinth. Fornication, idolatry, adultery, homosexuality, drunkenness, abusive speech and slander, and stealing is how they were known what characterized them. And beloved, it is into this morass that the Apostle Paul wrote this lengthy confrontational letter. And he deals with many different topics, with unity and disunity, immorality and church discipline, marriage and divorce, Christian liberties, the role of men and women, spiritual gifts and tongues. And of course, as in all the writings of the Bible and in all the writings of the New Testament and the letters, there's a combination of doctrine and life. It's interesting, though, in 1 Corinthians, Paul, unlike many of his other letters, in the first 14 chapters, has a greater emphasis on practical matters of life. But then when he comes to chapter 15, Paul pivots. And in chapter 15, which is the longest chapter in the entire book, he has a massive treatise and exhortation in this singularly focused chapter. And the subject is the resurrection. It's interesting, of the very many topics the Apostle Paul deals with in this letter to this immature church, he saves resurrection for the last. And I think the reason behind this is the Apostle Paul understands that the resurrection is absolutely foundational and fundamental. And confusion here will spread everywhere. And for one to deny the resurrection is for one to destroy the fabric of Christianity. A friend, there is no moral value to Christianity apart from the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, what I'm going to do, there's 58 verses here. I'm certainly not going to go through all of them. I'm going to skim and at the very beginning look at the first eight verses and pick up some verses in the middle and then wrap up with some verses at the end. And beloved, what we'll see here as we go through this wonderful letter, at a, this wonderful chapter at a very high level is we will see the good news of the resurrection, the guarantee of the resurrection, and the glory of the resurrection. And beloved, dear friend, God would want us, would want you to have hope and joy rather than despair and misery in all circumstances of life, even when faced with death. God would have us have victory over sin rather than defeat by sin. That is the impact, the influence of the glorious truth of the resurrection. So first, let's look at the good news of the resurrection in the first eight verses the good news the gospel of the resurrection uh, the word gospel literally means good news and the situation the way of course now that is a christian word but it was used back in the time and what would happen was when a country or a land was at war a messenger would come with news he would run at full speed as fast as he could to bring back the news of the outcome of the battle and when the citizens of the city or the land would see the man running at full speed they would be wondering is he bringing good news of victory or is he bringing bad news of defeat 
And the gospel here is the good news of the greatest victory ever. And Paul defines this. Beloved, the hope of the resurrection, understand this, the hope of the resurrection is undiluted good news. It is good news. And what Paul does is he gives gospel fact and gospel witness. Gospel fact in the first four verses. He defines the gospel. The apostle understands that the resurrection is at the epicenter of the gospel proclamation. That's why, for example, Paul wrote to the church in Rome, in Romans 10, verse 9, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you shall be saved. There is no salvation without belief in the resurrection. But here, the word of God here in Ephesians, first two verses, Paul writes, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you, which also you received, in which also you stand, by which also you were saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So Paul preached, they received, they were saved, and they stand even now in those truths. Even this immature, problematic, troubled church stand on the bedrock of this statement. And then in verses 3 and 4, Paul continues. He says, for, this is the reason why, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, namely that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. Now, one of the questions we might ask is a desire to be a good student of the word is, why does Paul in verse 3 use those words, as of first importance? And again, the answer is simple and straightforward, because the resurrection is of first importance. There is no salvation, there is no gospel, aside from this great truth. Paul understands the atoning significance of the resurrection and the abiding relevance of the resurrection for every child of God in any country, in any language, at any point of time. Beloved, also understand this. Even in these eight verses, Paul makes no effort to prove the resurrection. He assumes we know it's true. Now, to be sure, we'll see the gospel witness that Paul talks about in verses 5 through 8. But even there, Paul is describing and he's using language that this is undeniable historical fact. He's not trying to convince his audience. He is rather reminding us of this, of what saved us in the first place. And he states it as undeniable fact. And he distills it down. He distills the gospel message down to the fact that Christ died for our sins, that he was buried and was also raised on the third day. And our minds might be drawn to even the scripture reading I did before of the godly women, the godly brave women that were at the tomb at the same time that the strong, rugged fishermen apostles had fled like scattered sheep in cowardice there were these brave godly women and the great message the messenger the angelos the angel of god communicated to them and the angel said to those godly brave women as we read in luke 24 at the tomb why do you seek the living among the dead they were, they were seeking Jesus, but they were seeking him in the wrong place. You don't find the living among the dead. 
And that personal experience the women had by seeing the angel, by hearing the message, and by seeing the empty tomb would change their lives forever. And beloved, we know that no amount of argument or debate can stifle the reality of personal experience. And we know this is true. We know this is very true. But, but, this is not, personal experience is not the approach Paul takes nor is it the approach the other apostolic authors take. Beloved, the resurrection is right at the thread of all of the apostolic preaching that we see in the New Testament. And the New Testament authors never rely upon their subjective experience. Rather, they build their foundation, they structure their message around the objective truth, not the subjective experience. That's why even here in verses 3 and 4, twice Paul says, according to the scriptures. So this isn't anything new. This isn't something Paul sucked out of his thumb. This is something that witnesses have seen, and this is something that God promised and prophesied even in the Old Testament. Beloved, Christianity works because it's true. Christianity is not true because it works. Do you get the distinction? Christianity works, is effective because it's true, because it's the Word of God. It's not true because it works. There's a world of difference between these two perspectives. That's the gospel fact. Uh, But then Paul moves on to the gospel witness in verses 5 through 8. So great a cloud of New Testament witnesses. Look at what he says in verse 5. And that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. And last of all, as it were, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So this great cloud of witnesses that Paul cites as accomplished fact is that Christ, the resurrected man, Jesus, appeared to Cephas, who is Peter, then to the twelve, then to some 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most likely in Galilee. Then to James, then all the apostles, and finally to Paul as one untimely born, as striking language, as as a miscarried baby is what Paul is saying here. In Paul's own estimation, he is least and last. But what's wonderful here is this great cloud of New Testament witnesses join a great cloud of even Old Testament witnesses. For example, Job. Uh, The book of Job, which was most likely the first book written in the Bible even before Moses wrote the Pentateuch, in chapter 19, Job, when he was sitting in his agony and anguish on the ash heap, listen to what Job said. I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will take his stand on the earth. Watch this. Even after my skin is destroyed, yet from my flesh I shall see God. Beloved, Dear friend, there are many of the religions of the world, most religions of the world have some kind of idea of immortality. But this strong emphasis, not just on the spirit, but on the resurrected body and flesh is something that's unique to Christianity and the economy of God. Abraham Abraham obeyed God's command on Mount Moriah to be willing to sacrifice his son Isaac because, we are told by the author of Hebrews, he knew that God is able to raise men even from the dead. Or the prophet Isaiah said, your dead will live, their corpses will rise. 
You who lie in the dust, awake and shout for joy, for your dew is as the dew of the dawn. Daniel wrote that although we die, one day we'll awake to everlasting life. So this great cloud of New Testament witnesses joins this great cloud of Old Testament witnesses. And of course, no surprise, is perfectly aligned with the teaching of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, who said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies. Peter Peter's sermon on the day of Pentecost, the resurrection was at the centerpiece of that. Peter preached the resurrection to the Jews in Acts chapter 4, and he preached the resurrection to the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Paul preached the resurrection in the synagogue at Antioch of Pisidia. He preached the resurrection to the Sanhedrin. He preached the resurrection to Governor Felix, and he preached the resurrection to King Agrippa. And beloved, dear friend, one great powerful blessing flowing from the open tomb of Jesus is that this truth removes heartache and replaces it with hope. The resurrection of Jesus throws open the doors of hope for people who trust him and trust in him, for people that believe him and what he says in his word, and for people who believe in him and trust him as Lord and Savior. In verses 12 through 19, I won't go through this in detail, but what Paul does is he basically spells out by reducing the argument of there's no resurrection from the dead to an absurdity. He gives six nonsensical if statements. If there is no resurrection of the dead, six times he says this is the ridiculous, ludicrous, illogical, unreasonable, irrational outcome. And what he's saying in essence is if Jesus' body lies decomposed in some ancient burial site in the Middle East right now, then we are all wasting our time here. Why, why am I doing what I'm doing up here if there's no resurrection from the dead? Why are you sitting here listening if there's no resurrection from the dead? Some of you might be here this morning because you're being polite to your family. And they appreciate that. We appreciate that. And you are always welcome here. But what Paul says in verses 12 through 19 is every preacher is a liar and God is a mocker if there's no resurrection from the dead. Our faith is worthless and preaching is pointless. He, he says there's no faith, there's no salvation, there's no good news, there's no gospel, there's no hope apart from the resurrection of the dead. Without the resurrection, the incarnation is pointless and the crucifixion is the tragedy of all tragedies. If there's no resurrection, we might as well be like the humanists who invest everything into what will very soon become nothing. That's what we read in verses 12 through 19. But, but now, first two words of verse 20, but now. Christ has been raised from the dead. We move from the good news of the resurrection to the guarantee of the resurrection. In verses 20 through 22, the sign, a sure and certain promise. But now Christ has been raised from the dead. That but now is the emphatic contrast with the six nonsensical if statements that preceded before. And Paul states this as historical fact. He has been raised from the dead, and he is alive and is alive forevermore. 
Paul wants to make sure that his original Corinthian audience and you and I remember that Christ is not like the son of the widow from Nain or like Jairus' daughter or Lazarus, the three people that Christ raised from the dead in his ministry because all three of those people eventually died again. Jesus rose from the grave, is alive, never to die again. And as, and here's where we get to the guarantee, as, verse 20, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And that phrase, the first fruits, that carries rich Old Testament, vivid imagery. The nation of Israel, after they would plant their crops and sow their crops and wait for the harvest, when they would have the first harvest, when their barns were getting empty, God instructed them to take the first fruits, the choicest and the first initial fruits of their harvest, and as an act of obedience and more importantly, an act of faith, give that as an offering to the Lord. And in the economy of God, according to Leviticus, when the nation of Israel would do this, that first fruits offering would precede the coming harvest, would consecrate the future harvest, set it apart, and even guarantee the harvest. And so what Paul is saying here is, in the same way that first fruits offering of Israel preceded, consecrated, and even guaranteed the coming harvest, so also Christ's resurrection from the grave precedes your resurrection, consecrates your future resurrection, and guarantees your future resurrection. Beloved, that is the great hope of the resurrection. He is the first fruits, and you are the harvest. Paul doesn't stop there, though. He gives that imagery from the Old Testament, and then what he does in verses 21 and 22 is he takes what is the most undeniable reality of human existence. What is, is there anything more certain than taxes? The answer is death. All of us know, if you're younger, it might not quite be as real as it is to people as you get older, but death is an inescapable reality, and that which strikes the greatest terror into the heart of men very often is used here by God to drive home the absolute guarantee of the promise of God of your resurrection. Verse 21, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. And in the original language, there actually were no verbs there to emphasize the noun. Literally, by a man death, by a man also the resurrection from the dead. Then in verse 22, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. Well, who's in Adam? Every human being. We're all born in Adam. We're all in Adam by natural generation. But in Christ, all those in Christ are in Christ by spiritual regeneration. All in Adam have been born at least once. And if they have only been born once, they will die twice. A physical death and an eternal spiritual death. All in Christ have been born twice so that they only die once. And over them, the second death has no power. And as surely as, what Paul is saying here, as surely as all in Adam die, just as sure you can be, all in Christ live and live eternally. Death entered the world because man sinned. Because man sinned, man must pay the penalty for sin. One way in which that punishment can be paid out is an eternity in hell. 
But there's a way of escape. There's another way in which a man can suffer the punishment for your sin and for my sin. The debt of sin requires the blood of man. That's why Jesus had to die as a man. He was a man. He died, he was buried, and he was raised as a man. And because he was raised as a man, that qualifies him to be the first fruits to guarantee your resurrection of all who will be raised to glory. And the very thing most feared by man, the very thing that drives a stake of despair, misery, and terror in the heart of man is used by God here to drive home the absolute certainty of the hope of the resurrection. And one more note you'll see in verse 6, verse 20, verse 18, verse 51, asleep, those who are asleep. Uh, In our English vernacular, we say very often when people die, we say they passed away. We're kind of trying to soften it. Well, in Scripture, in the New Testament in particular, when they're describing believers and only believers, they say that he or she is asleep in Christ. And beloved, the point there is the death of a believer is nothing more than sleep, and sleep is not to be feared. This means that for the child of God, for the son of God, for the daughter of God, death is not extinguishing the light of a Christian. It's putting out the lamp because the dawn of a new day has come. And so, therefore, we approach death with hope and joy, not with despair and misery. The good news of the resurrection, the guarantee of the resurrection. At the end of the chapter, you see the glory of the resurrection. Look at verses 40 through 43. And what he does is, in verses 40 through 42, he draws from the natural world of the heavenly and the earthly natural world. Verse 40, there are also heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one and the glory of the earthly is another. There is one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So also is the resurrection of the dead. It is sown a perishable body. It is raised an imperishable body. And then here in verse 43, it is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sowed in weakness. It is raised in power. And beloved, then after that, in verses 50 through 57, what God communicates to you is that your future resurrected body will be a spiritual body. It'll be an imperishable body. It'll be a victorious body or a successful body if you want a word to go with the common sounding words before. Beloved, first, your future resurrected body is a spiritual body. At the beginning of verse 50, Paul writes, Now I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Therefore, it must be spiritual. It's actually stated directly. Look at verse 44. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. And even when we think of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in his resurrected body, in John chapter 20 and Luke chapter 24, Christ came and appeared in the midst of the disciples in a closed room. I don't know if his molecules passed through the molecules of the door or they just materialized, whatever it was, but it was clearly a spiritual body. So his body, his resurrected body is a spiritual body, so will yours, and also it is a physical body. It's a physical body as well. 
And that is what he wants us to understand, that it's a physical body. For example, in Luke 24, he was there and Christ said, look, look at me, feel me, touch me, put your hand in the hole in my side. And in fact, Luke records that he took a piece of fish that they gave him and he ate it. Now, I don't think Jesus ate that fish because he was hungry per se. I think the primary motivation, the primary reason he ate that fish was that for his disciples, that you and I would understand it's a real physical body. So it is a spiritual body and it is a physical body. Also, your new body will be connected to your old body. There is both continuity and discontinuity. There is both congruity and incongruity. Now, I don't know what that means. I don't know if it means like all the hair will grow back, the love handles will go away, or maybe everyone will be bald. I don't know what it will be in heaven, but it will be connected. And this is even part of more physical imagery he gives back in verses 36 through 38. He says, you fool. He's saying you, you fool to the one that doesn't understand or won't believe the clear truth he's talking here. That which you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And that which you sow, you do not sow the body which is to be, but a bare grain, perhaps of wheat or something else. You don't take a wheat stalk and put it in the ground. You put a seed in the ground. Verse 38, but God gives it a body just as he wish, and to each of the seeds a body of its own. All flesh is not the same flesh, but there is one flesh of men and another flesh of beasts and another flesh of birds and another of fish. And what he's saying here is you don't plant a seed of wheat and then expect a corn stalk to pop up. So it is a spiritual body. It is a physical body that is connected to your old body. And it is an imperishable body. At the end of verse 50, he says, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, I don't think any of us here, unless we're very young, need any convincing about the perishability of our body. I think of Shakespeare's Hamlet speaking to Horatio in the churchyard after they found Yorick's skull. And Hamlet said, the mighty Alexander the Great turned to dust, and we use the dust of the earth to make a plug to plug the barrel of a beer. Or imperious Caesar is dead, turned to clay, and we'll use him to patch a wall to keep the winter wind out. So Hamlet, Shakespeare, understands the perishability of this present body of death. We understand that. But, but, verse 51, behold, Paul writes, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all asleep, but we shall all be changed. This mighty verse here isn't just the mighty theme verse of the nursery. It's a promise from God to you and to I. Verse 52, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall all be changed, for this perishable must put on the imperishable. This mortal must put on immortality. So imperishable and immortal. Imperishable means you won't die. Immortal means you'll live forever. That's the promise of God, of this body that is coming to you. It's imperishable, it's immortal, and it's powerful. Look at verse 43. We read it before, but at the end, it's sown in weakness, and it is raised in power. So it's imperishable, and it's powerful, and it is a body like Jesus' body. That's what Paul brings out in verses 47 through 49. 
The first man is from the earth, earthy. The second man is from heaven. So that brings out the imagery of the first Adam and then Christ as the second Adam, but applying it to the old body and the new body. Verse 48, as is the earthy, so also are those who are earthy. And as is the heavenly, so also are those who are heavenly. And just as we have borne the image of the earthy, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly. What Paul there is doing, he's letting us know that our body will be like the body of the first fruits of this resurrection. And that's precisely what the Apostle John wrote in his first epistle in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2, when John wrote, We know that when he appears, we will be like him, because we will see him as he truly is. So it's a spiritual body, it's an imperishable body. And beloved, out of the tragedy of tragedies, out of the greatest cruelty of the murder of Jesus, out of the worst injustice at the hands of wicked men comes the greatest victory. Verses 54 through 56. But, one more powerful, tremendous contrast. But, when this perishable will have put on the imperishable, and this mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is in the law. Beloved, even... In the Old Testament, even in the Bible, death is pictured as a scorpion or a poisonous insect that stings. Like a death is pictured like a military marauding army ravaging land and murdering many in their wake. But, but for we who are in Christ, death is the gateway to eternal life, and death is the last enemy that will be abolished. Back in verses 24 through 26. And then verse 57, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved, that means Jesus went before you. He's preparing right now a place for you. John chapter 14, he's coming back to get you and you, if you're in Christ, will be with him forever and ever. The son, listen please, the son came to prepare his children for heaven. The Son went to prepare heaven for his children. This is the glory of heaven. This is the hope of Easter. And beloved, dear friend, your home here matters. My home over in Power Ranch matters. But all our homes are passing away. Jesus is preparing a home for you that will never pass away, that will last forever. And even as we think of the godly women who went to the tomb, they went to the tomb with an air of finality. But after hearing the message and seeing the tomb, they went away with a spirit of great, great victory. Living, he loved me. Dying, he saved me. And buried, he carried my sins far away. Rising, he justified freely forever. One day he's coming. Oh, glorious day. Oh, glorious day. Beloved, that is the good news, the guarantee, the glory of the resurrection. There's one last element, though. Verse 58, the goal of the resurrection. Not the ultimate eternal goal, but the present right here, right now goal of the resurrection. Paul 
doesn't leave us in heaven in his last verse. He brings us right down here to earth. This is where doctrine and life comes together. After 57 verses of the most amazing doctrine, he brings life to the forefront. He says, if you want to stand firm, you must hold firm. He opens up verse 58, therefore, therefore, everything that he wrote before, we understand when we look at the writings of Paul that Paul's therefores, his QEDs are among the most important aspects of what he has to say to us. And we also understand when we think of the whole doctrine in life that Paul is usually pretty balanced between doctrine and direction, between position and practice, between exposition and exhortation between what to know and how to grow. For example, in the book of Ephesians, the first three, the first half of the book, the first three chapters, Paul has a greater emphasis on the doctrine, the position, the exposition. And then the latter half of the book, the latter three chapters, he shifts gear and has a greater greater, uh, focus on the direction, the practice, and the exhortation. But here, He is massively lopsided, 57 verses, and then one verse of application that therefore in verse 58 is built upon the previous. And what Paul is doing here is he's taking the undeniable logic of the first 57 verses and following it by the irresistible appeal of this exhortation. Therefore, my beloved brethren, Beloved brethren, we, when we read Paul, we see him refer to believers as beloved. We see him refer to believers as brethren. There's only two churches, however, where he joins together beloved brethren. And in the mystery and wonder of God, he does it at the opposite ends of the spectrum. The church that gave him great joy, the church in Philippi, beloved brethren. And then now this immature, problematic, troubled, big-time flopping and failing church in Corinth, beloved brethren. And then the exhortation, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil, your tribulation, your trial, your anguish, your agony is not in vain in Christ. Beloved, what Paul tells you and me is be unstoppable, be durable. Be unstoppable and be durable because in Christ you are invincible. Be unstoppable, be durable because you are invincible in Christ. Beloved, I am so blessed. Very often there are periods of my life, even recently, where God has ministered greatly to me through the lyrics of Christian hymns and songs. And even as we sang in Christ alone earlier, The words, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Another story is told of a little blind boy that was flying a kite. And some man came by and insensitively said, how can you know your kite's up there? You can't see it. 
the wise, blind little boy said, I know it's there because I can feel the tug of the string in my hand. Dear friend, every man, every woman feels the tug of immortality. You might not always be able to see it, but you know it's there. You are a spirit. That is important. You are also matter, and your matter matters. And both of these together mean that you are made for more than just the narrow confines of this world. You are never made by God to be fully satisfied in this world, no matter how well and good things go for you. During the heartless tyranny of the Middle Ages, wicked men came up with all kinds of horrific forms of torture. One form of torture was they would take a victim and put the victim in a room that would seemingly be a comfortable room, and even with food and water. And it would take the victim, the man or the woman, some time to begin to realize hours after hours that the walls were slowly contracting and the room was beginning to shrink. And the horrible fate that await them would explode into their mind. And then in the oiled and silent grooves as the walls inexorably moved in, after several days, it would crush the victim to death. This is the man or the woman without Christ. Things may seem to be okay for a time on the surface, but in the end, he or she will be crushed in a Christless death. Dear friend, you must deal with the empty tomb. You must come to the tomb. There will be a resurrection. Will it be a resurrection unto death where the tongue burns forever or will it be a resurrection unto life where you will never thirst forever in the presence of Christ in heaven forever removed from pain, tears, sorrow, and weeping. Jesus said again, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he or she dies. This is the great hope of the resurrection. The message of scripture is a message of resurrection hope. A message that death is not the end for those who belong to God. Death is a doorway. And as the resurrection lamp burns, the gloom of death is gone, and we rejoice even in death to leave the land of the dying to enter into the land of the living. The last stanza of, this is my father's world. This is my father's world, oh let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. The battle is not done. Jesus who died shall be satisfied and earth and heaven be one. And then David's closing thought in his psalm of prayer, Psalm 17, as for me, I will behold your face in righteousness. I will be, Jesus died and is and will be satisfied. David said, I will be satisfied with your likeness, Lord Jesus, when I awake. Please join me, beloved, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we praise you and thank you, Lord. We thank you, Lord God, for the message of the gospel. We thank you for the resurrection, for your resurrection, what that means for those of us Lord, we deserve nothing in our humanity but judgment. It is your grace and your mercy, the newness of life that you give us in Christ. We praise you and thank you, Lord God, that we can sing a new song, the song of the redeemed. 
And Lord God, for anyone here this morning that is listening now or listening or watching now or later that is not trusting in you alone by faith alone for their salvation, dear God, put life where there is no life before. Draw them to yourself. Adopt them into the family of God, into the body of Christ so that they enjoy this perfect, certain promise of a future resurrection unto life in your presence. It's for your glory and for your honor, Lord Jesus, that we pray and that we sing. Amen.